Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So uh, last week, we went uh, through 1 Samuel uh, 19 and 20. Today, we're going to go through 21 and 22. And just a quick recap before we get into 21. If you want to go ahead and start turning there to 1 Samuel 21, you can. But just a quick recap. Um, Last week, Saul has made the decision that he wants David dead. David is a young man who has been in Saul's service. Saul is a pretty disobedient king. God made him king, but Saul is not doing what God asked him to do. And so God is dismantling Saul's kingdom and his presence has left Saul. Saul is kind of in a pinch right now because now he's got the crown, but he doesn't have the Lord and everything is working against him. And he's getting anxious and he's getting jealous. And one of the people that he was jealous of was this young man named David who was serving in his court. Come to find out David is actually Saul's replacement. Samuel the prophet anointed David and he, as he grows up, he's gonna take the throne. It becomes apparent to Saul that David is his replacement, and now Saul is gonna solve the problem by killing him. He's tried numerous times, it hasn't really worked, but last week, everything came to a head and David had to run for his life. So where we're picking up the story here today is David leaving the presence of his wife, his home, his best friend, the titles that he knows, the kingdom that he knows, and he's on the run. And this is gonna continue mostly throughout the rest of this book. So the rest of 1 Samuel, all the way until we get up into 2 Samuel. This is essentially the story of David. He's on the run. Um, Now, this whole season of David's life is a low point, and as you read it, like your heart's gonna ache because this kid doesn't deserve this stuff. And I say kid loosely. He's probably in his 20s, but it's, it's it's a sad story. Like as you read through it, to have, like it would be the equivalent of you being a nobody and then all of a sudden the president puts a hit out on your life and he wants you dead. And he starts leveraging all the finances of the entire country to just put hits out on you. And everywhere you go, there's nowhere safe. You're hiding out, just trying to save your life. It's a a really low season of David's life, but this season is really unique for David because he learns more about leadership and about himself and about God than any other time in his life. It's a, it's a low, sad season, but it is a very rich season. And as you read through this, you, you, you start understanding what God is doing, because he do, he's doing the same thing in his people today. We often learn the most in our lowest seasons of life. See, when everything's going right, no one says, I wonder why everything's going right. So that I can keep on having things go right. No, no one asks that. You just enjoy that things are going well. But the moment things start falling apart, you're like, oh, what happened? And that moment, that, that the second that you ask that question, what happened? You open the door to the Lord, start speaking to you, and then you start learning about yourself. You start learning about Him. And so that's what's happening in David's life. I don't want you to lose the emotion and the sadness of what's happening, because it is sad, but I also want us to dig deep into that mud and start realizing the value of God allowing his people to go through suffering seasons. Amen? Okay. Get it? First Samuel 21. Let's go to verse 1, 
And we're going to go through verse 9. It says, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came down to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? All right, now Ahimelech, he's not an idiot. He knows what's going on. He may not necessarily know that Saul has a hit out on David, but every time David has come to this priest, he's always got men with him. And he may have heard about what happened with the town just previously over in Ramah, about the, the guys coming and, and they were just kind of seized by the Holy Spirit. So there's a lot of weird stuff happening around David. And so when, when Ahimelech sees David coming up, he, he's like, what is this dude doing here and why is he alone? What's going on? He's alerted that something is not right. And David says to him like the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young man for such and such a place. So Ahimelech's like, why are you alone? He's like, well, I'm alone because I'm on a mission from the king and the men that should be with me, they're hiding out, I'm gonna meet them in a certain place sometime in the future. Verse three, now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered, well, I have no common bread on hand but there is holy bread. If the young men who you're gonna meet have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest truly, women have been kept from us always when I go out on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread and there was no, for there was no uh, bread there but the bread of the presence which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, well, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it's here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, we'll take it, for there's none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. Let's pause there. All right, so David has left Saul's presence, he's left Gibeah, and he's headed to this town called Nob. Let's take a look at a map so we can get a sense of where these locations are. We're gonna start off with the globe. We're gonna zoom in on the Middle East. And the map that we're gonna zoom in on is giving us all the key locations, not just for this section of scripture, which is Nob, but also for the rest of the story as we go through 21 and 22. So these are all the locations David's gonna to hit today. He starts off in Gibeah and he goes over to Nob. This is where he's hanging out now. He's having this conversation with the priest. After this, he's gonna head over to Gath. That's an interesting story, we'll get there in a minute. He heads back over to Adullam. We're told that he goes over, probably goes north, over to the land of Moab, and then comes back over to Adullam or hangs out somewhere in the caves of Judah. But I give you this just to get a sense of scale for where these locations are and how far they are apart. Nob was probably only about a mile and a half from Gibeah. So as soon as he has that last conversation with Jonathan, 
He flees to Nob about a mile and a half up the road, and this is where he has this conversation with the priest. And when he comes to the priest, he asks for two things, food and weapons. And he says he's, he's asking this because he had to leave so fast, and he's on a mission for, uh, on behalf of the king. Now, two things are happening here. Either David is just straight up lying, or two, David is employing some of the language that he typically employs when he writes the Psalms, specifically Psalm 24, verse seven and eight, when he calls the Lord the king of glory. So when David says, I'm on a mission from the king, he might be saying, I'm on, the mission for, I'm, on a, I'm on a mission from the, not the king, like the, the king. I'm here on behalf of Yahweh. But then he asks if there's any food available for them. And the priest has this conversation with him about consecrated food. And it's an interesting conversation if you're unfamiliar with the stuff uh, that was considered furniture around the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle is probably not set up here. What was in Nob was probably some makeshift worship place. Um, there was a, probably a couple pieces of furniture. The ark definitely wasn't there. But the priests were there ministering, and there was obviously a table. And on this table, it's called the table of showbread, on this table was bread. And it was called the bread of the presence. And what the priest did every uh, week would come and would take hot bread. He would take the old bread, replace it, put hot bread on the table. And the bread was there for two main purposes. One, it fed the priests. And two, it was symbolic of God's presence being um, among his people. There is this symbolic connection to God's presence and the life-giving food of fresh bread. Okay? This is a heavy symbolic thing that carries all the way into the New Testament, all the way up into communion. This idea that God will supply his people's needs. He will, be, he will actually literally give himself. He is among his people and he's always providing from his people. How do you know that? That reality is, is literally presented in the fact that there is literal bread sitting here on this table. Every time you see that table with bread on it, it's supposed to remind you God is with us and he's always providing for us. Now that bread was strictly for the priests. And so the conversation David has is, I want that bread. Well, David, you're not a priest, so you can't have that bread. But then we see the priest kind of acquiesce and he says, okay, well, you can have the bread. Well, what's going on there? There was a command in Leviticus 6.16 that said that that bread was only supposed to be eaten by the priests. But there's another story in Leviticus 10, 12 through 20, where there's a situation where the priests under Aaron had a specific rule they were supposed to follow in how they were supposed to eat and where they were supposed to eat. And it comes up that they disobeyed. And Moses comes to them, essentially bringing a message of judgment. But the priest turns to Moses and says, listen, in essence, we're interpreting God's word in light of the needs of the people. So there is a command, but there's also a need. And when the people of God are in need, we have the right to interpret God's laws in order to meet the need because God's people are in need. And Moses says, you have a good point there. And so the judgment was held back. And so there is a sense and precedent in scripture where the priests in some way can interpret God's laws in different ways if there is an urgency or a need on the people. And this is what's happening here. David comes with a need and the priest is saying, I can interpret the scripture. You're not supposed to be eating this, but I can make an exception to the rule 
if your people are following the same rules that my people follow when they eat this bread? Have they followed the laws that the Levites follow? Have they kept themselves ceremonially, ceremonially clean from women? And David's like, of course. We always do that. Every, in fact, every time we go out on a mission, I make sure that my men stay ceremonial clean because I don't see anything that we do as a military as just stuff that we do in the physical realm. Everything we do has spiritual implications. We are the sword of the Lord. We're consecrated unto him. So when we go out to battle, we're always consecrating ourselves. And so the priest essentially says, okay, well, this is, this is fine. As long as your men are clean like the priest, then you can have it. But the beauty of this entire conversation and passage is wrapped in what that bread represented on the table. The bread represented that God's presence was always with his people and he was always providing for his people. And that symbolic representation provided exactly what David needed in the moment. The power of this is it moved beyond just a symbol to an actual tangible meeting of a need for God's people. And that's the beauty of communion. That's why communion is so powerful. It's not just symbolic in the sense that we have a picture or an idea. What it's literally doing is it's, it's literal bread and wine that's literally getting on the inside of you. Like, it's not just a symbol that sits on the table and we all just stand back and say, well, isn't that nice? No, it's something that we digest on the inside of us. And then the, symbol, the, the symbolism of it gets on the inside of us and then it starts affecting our spirit. Now what we're saying is the body of Christ is not just sitting on there on the table reminding me that it's there for me. The body of Christ is getting on the inside of me in the same way that the Holy Spirit gets on the inside of me. Are, you see where I'm going with this? This is the beauty of this moment. David is not just saying, I need that bread. What he's literally saying is, I need God in me. I need God's provision for me. So then he asks for the sword, and the sword is very interesting because we're told that the sword was Goliath's sword. So there's no way that this sword was small enough for David to actually use as a weapon of defense. It was too big for him. But he kept it as a trophy. And when he's told there's no other weapons, there's just this one sword, David said, yeah, there is no sword like that. Give it to me. David didn't take that bread because it was just the, the food that was available. He took the bread because it was the food that was available and also what it meant. And he didn't just take the sword because it was the only sword that was available. He took the sword because it was the only sword available and also what it meant. And that's what's so important about the word of God for us. There are things that it says to us that are true but there are also things that it says to us that are true and have deep-rooted meaning that the symbols are tied to, and that's what's happening in this moment. David did just take bread and a sword, but he didn't just take bread and a sword. You hear what I'm saying? And so he took this sword, and what happens next is it seems as though this sword gave him an idea. Now, it wasn't a very good idea, but that's a good lesson for us because a lot of the symbolism that's in here, we take and we kind of, we try to twist it to work our own purposes. The symbol stands on its own. It doesn't need you to inject meaning into it. We learned that when we read the book of Revelation. The meanings and the, the, the symbols have meanings. They don't need you to bring meaning to the table. 
So this symbol had meaning. It was, it was a symbol of God's provision of conquering giants. But when David saw it, he saw it as a symbol of personal protection. You know what I could do? I could go hide in the land of the enemy and Saul would never look for me there. And even if he did, he wouldn't come for me because we've got precedent. Saul doesn't like the Philistines. He's afraid of them. So what David does is he looks at the sword and he thinks to himself, I could walk around Gath and if they saw that sword, nobody would mess with me. Nobody's going to mess with the guy who's carrying Goliath's sword. That's his first misstep. And this brings us into what's starting to happen in chapter 21. See, David is about to go to school. Now, this isn't the kind of school you'd send your kids to because it's in the wilderness and the teachers are trying to kill you. But this is the school David needed. And the reason why David needed the school is because one day David is going to wear that crown. And God doesn't want David wearing that crown in the same way, same way that Saul wore that crown. So there's a lot of things that David has to learn about being a king, about leading people. There's a lot of things he has to learn about himself, and there's a lot of things he has to learn about God. And one of the most important things he has to learn as he starts on this journey is that he needs to understand that God's people don't depend on the same things that this world depends on. See, this world depends on the on on past successes, past experiences, your education, what you grew up with, what your grandfather taught you. This world relies on status and title and achievement. But that's not what the people of God lean on. This is what Saul leaned on. He leaned on the cheers of the crowd, but that's not what God's people lean on. There's one thing that God's people lean on, and it's not making foreign alliances with foreign kings. It's the Lord, and only the Lord. And so what David is about to do is he's about to go through a masterclass of learning the value of trusting in the Lord and not in himself, not in his past experiences, not in the titles that he held back in Gibeah, and not even making foreign alliances with kings that he thinks he can hide out in their land and hide from Saul. Because the moment you're doing that, now see, it's not the Lord protecting you. It's the nation protecting you. And that's dangerous. When you start thinking, like, I have so much protection in the systems of this world and this country and what they tell me is true, then I don't need to trust the Lord. When things get tough, I've got people I trust that tell me it's going to be okay. They put the bottle back in my mouth. They change my diaper. I'm okay. I don't need anything else because I've got a system that takes care of me. And what God is going to do in David and what he's doing in us is he's systematically dismantling that thought process. So you're, you, as a born-again believer, aren't designed to live off the things of this world. We can't live off of bread alone. We're supposed to be living out of every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He's our protection. He's our security. He's the one that cares for us. So this is what he's learning. So let's get into the first lesson. Let's go to verse 10. 
So he has the sword of Goliath, and the first thing that he does is he goes over to Gath. It says, David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Ahish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Ahish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Uh-oh. So the Philistines listened to the Israelite radio. David took these words to heart, and they made him much afraid of Ahish, the king of Gath. So afraid that he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Ahish said to his servants, behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? I got enough problems. I've got giants who are related to giants. Some of them got six toes. I got enough problems. I don't need a guy drooling in front of me. Say to this fellow, come into my house. Why, why, did, why did you do that? So essentially, he, he, he's like, I don't, I, don't, I don't even want to see this champion named David. Now let's pause right there. This story and I said last week that I was going to try and do this as much as I possible, possibly could. This story is reflected in David's psalm, Psalm 56. So later, go and read Psalm 56. It reads when you first just read through it that it seems like David rose and immediately went to the king. But in light of Psalm 56, that doesn't actually account for what happened. What happened was David took the sword and went to the land of Gath and thought he could hide out but he was caught. He thought that he could have the sword just kind of sitting on his shoulder or sitting on his donkey and like anybody came by, oh, that's the dude that took out Goliath? I don't want anything to do with him. But that's not what happened. We're told in Psalm 56 that he was seized by the Philistines and he was brought before the king. And David thought that the sword could save him when he was before the king, but the moment he gets before the king, he starts realizing that everyone sees him as a trophy and they're not afraid of the sword. They're not afraid of David's past accomplishments. His accomplishments mean nothing in this circumstance. What he has done before doesn't mean anything. So he stands before the king and he realizes, I've made a big mistake. I put my trust in this sword that it would keep me safe, and it hasn't. So I'm gonna have to try another plan so he makes this plan where he acts as a madman. It gets him out of trouble. But then he writes Psalm 34, and we understand what he learned in this moment. I just want to read briefly Psalm 34, verse 18 through 22. Psalm 34, verse 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate righteousness will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So what's the first lesson David had to learn in this school? That you can't lean on the successes of your past for future comfort. 
The only comfort that the people of God have is in the Lord and what he's doing right now. Now you can lean, you can look back on his past faithfulness and that can give you courage to trust the Lord right now, but you can't lean back on the, on, on the thing that God did in your life 30 years ago as a thing that's still sustaining you today. Listen, he wants better for you. Listen, you may have felt like, okay, growing up, like there was this one summer camp that just kind of rocked my life and it just changed everything. Well, good, that's awesome. I'm so glad that God's faithfulness was, was present in that moment. What's he doing right now, though? Let me ask, like, what is God doing in your life right, right now? What is he talking, talking to you about? What is he challenging you? What are you reading? Where are you reading? Are you being faithful to pursue him and seek him? Are you hungry for him showing up in your life right now? Or are you like making the mistake that David made and thinking that you can sustain yourself off of the things that he did 10 years ago at your last church? You hearing me? There is an expectation for God's people to continue trusting the Lord in this present moment right now. And so what God did was he stripped David of this this uh, comfort. He humbled him. And we get to see what David learned in this moment, which is great. Let's continue on to 22. He's about to learn another lesson. So verse 22, chapter 22, verse 1, he leaves Gath. The Lord protects him, not the sword. The Lord protects him. He leaves Gath and he heads to Adullam, which was on the map. It was probably just about, I don't know, less than 10 miles from where Gath was. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's, heard, his father's house heard it, they went down there too. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. Oh man. Think about this. David is going to be the next king of Israel, but who is he leading? Everybody in the country who is in distress, in debt, and in bitter and soul. Imagine that church. <laughs> and David's the pastor of that church. Who's God send you? Man, every outcast for 300 miles. That's who's God sending me. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And so he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. So after escaping Goliath, David goes to hide out in Adullam and there he's gathering every outcast for a hundred miles. And he also finds that his family is now in hiding because you don't want to be the brother of the guy who Saul wants dead. You don't want to be the, the dad, the, the father of the guy who Saul wants dead. So all of his family's now in hiding and they're standing around in this cave. And David's thinking, okay, well, all of these outcasts, they can just hang with me. They should be safe. But I got to find somewhere safe for my family. I know 
I'll go to the king of Moab and ask the king to keep my family safe. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, so he's about to learn the lesson. You don't make alliances with foreign kings. No, no. He just learned that lesson. For David, Moab isn't a foreign king. Because if you read the book of Ruth, David's great-great-grandmother was a Moabite. So David leverages not his title, but his family relationship to keep his family safe. So he goes over to the king of Moab, and he leaves his family with them, and he has them uh, stay with them until this whole situation is resolved. So what is David learning during this point? Well, it doesn't matter what he was previously in his past life. His title doesn't matter. What he knew didn't matter. None of that is going to keep his family safe or these new outcasts that, have, that are calling him leader. Now, as, at this point, you can start to understand the value of reading through 1 Samuel. Because when you see that it didn't matter that David's wife was the king's daughter and David's best friend was the king's son. It didn't matter all the battles David had won. It didn't matter that he had Goliath's sword. It didn't matter that he was the, the, essentially the, the head over all of the armies of Saul. None of those titles mattered. You start understanding the value that this book has things to say, not just about David, but about you. It's easy for us to draw the connection between, okay, I, I see what you're saying, my past experiences, I can't lean on those, I have to lean on the Lord, okay. But, but I, can, I can certainly lean on who I am and my character. No, you can't. Your character speaks volume, but that can't be the thing that you find safety and protection in. Because as we said last week, when the Lord wants you to come to a place where you, He is the only thing you're trusting, all the stuff on your table, he's gonna start shaking. And the sword's gonna fall off and your, your title at work, that thing that God has blessed you with, that, that title, that position, the moment you start putting trust in that instead of him, you better be careful because that's the territory where he starts taking that stuff away. The moment you start putting more comfort and joy and peace and security in your security system at your home or in your family or in your wife, watch out. Look, this is a warning I don't like bringing, but you have got to hear it. Do not Put your hope in the things that God has blessed you with because he just might take them away. Because he will have no other gods before him. And that is what's hap that what ha that's what happens the moment you start putting your hope in your career or the fact that that paycheck is just always gonna be there or that there's no problems in your home or there's no problems in these relationships. I can... I can find comfort and safety in the fact that I've, I've got this title, that these people know me this way. No, 
There is no comfort in that. And the moment you start putting your hope and your comfort in the things made with the hands of man, you're gonna find the Lord swooping in and shaking that stuff, and it's gonna start falling apart. So there's no guarantee that the Lord's not gonna shake everything in your life, but I can tell you that if you don't put your hope in the things he blesses you with, there is a very low chance that he's gonna start shaking those things because there's no reason to shake. So here's my encouragement. Do the work to unhitch your heart from that stuff now so that the Lord doesn't have to come in and do it his way. You hear me? This isn't pleasant, no one likes this. But here's the truth. If you don't want that ripped from you in order to teach you the value of fixing your eyes on Jesus, then go ahead and just fix your eyes on Jesus now. There's no promise that won't be shaken, but if it ever is shaken, you won't crumble because your hope was never in that stuff in the first place. Because here's the thing that the Lord does. When we start putting our hope in the things of this world, he just comes in and he's like, let's just shake a little bit. I just, I don't want that in you, so I'm just gonna, and you're like, no, 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 that was my favorite thing. (laughs) Not that. Well, listen, if your only treasure is in him and he's your favorite thing, he can sweep the table, it doesn't matter. And he doesn't need to sweep the table because it doesn't matter. You see where I'm going with this? Unhitch your heart from the things of this world. Stop living with such a desire of the things of this world, and you'll, you'll do yourself an amazing service. You will not fall apart if and when that stuff ever gets shaken, and you will enjoy the blessings of fixing your eyes on the greatest treasure in the world. You see where I'm going with this? David realized and learned something in this school, that all of his previous titles didn't matter because there was only one thing that really mattered, and that was it didn't matter where he went or what he did, God was protecting him. Now, he's learning that relationships and titles and stat- you know, status, these, these things are not where we put our hope in, um, but what's happening to Saul while this is all happening? So David's at school, he's learning all this stuff about the Lord, but what's happening to Saul at this point. Let's go to verse six. Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. So Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. Man, every time you see Saul, he's got a spear in his hand. Why? Because he's on edge. He's the picture of a man who's irritated at everything. Dads, is this you? Do you sit in your lazy boy at home with a spear in your hand, waiting for anything to be pinned to the wall? Is it like your children are walking on eggshells around your house because no one wants to upset dad? The author is giving us these pictures that we're supposed to draw on. We're not just supposed to look at Saul and be like, oh, what, a, what an idiot, Saul the big dummy. No, you're supposed to read this and say, oh, Marshall the big dummy. Saul's sitting under the tamarisk tree and his lazy boy, and what does he have? He's not weeping over his sin. He isn't sad. He's got a spear in his hand. He's ticked off about something else. What is it? We don't know, but dad's always mad at something. 
And all his servants are standing around. Verse 7, Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Oh, that's interesting because Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And now the only leaders around him are Benjamites. And so now he, we've discovered that he's only promoted his best friends into leadership. Will the son of Jesse give you every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? that all of you have conspired against me. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait at this day. And at this moment, a man answered, Doeg the Edomite, the guy from the previous chapter who watched David come and get help from the priest, stood by the servants of Saul and said, uh... I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab. And he inquired of the Lord from him, and that priest, he gave him provisions, and he gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So Saul is having a pity party, and he starts to accuse all of his men of disloyalty. Why aren't you helping? Why aren't you helping? And then this guy named Doeg the Edomite steps forward. Now, we were told in 1 Samuel 14, 47, that when Saul started became king and started conquering the regions around him, one of the chief nations that Israel made war with was Edom. Where was Doeg from? He was an Edomite. So Doeg isn't just like a servant. He's not like a best friend of Saul. They didn't grow up together. He's a, he, he's a slave from war. When Saul was conquering Edom, he took slaves for himself. We knew he liked doing this, but he took this one guy, Doeg, and he made him a servant in the presence of the Lord. And now this guy, Doeg, who has had his home decimated at the hands of the king, is watching the king get angry at his own men and this guy named David, who he saw previously, and he sees an opportunity. Doeg sees an opportunity to sow division among God's people because he's not one of God's people. He's an enemy. He hates God's people. God's people are the ones why he doesn't have a home anymore. He's the reason why he's standing there as a servant in chains. So of course he's going to offer up something that's going to whet the king's appetite. Let's see what happens in verse 11. It says, Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all the father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. So they came about a mile and a half from Nob over to Gibeah. And Saul said, here now, son of Ahitab. And he answered, here I am, my Lord. And he said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him that he has risen against me to lie in wait as, as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in the house? So Saul is like, why did you sell me out to David? And the priest is like, sell you out to David? David's your best man. I didn't sell you out to David. David is an awesome dude. He's conquered so many battles in your name. Like he's a good guy. Why, why wouldn't I help? I've always helped David. Why would I not have helped David? Is today the first time, verse 15, is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. 
Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. I don't know what's going on, so you can't accuse me. I'm just doing what I've always done in helping David. And the king said, well, you're going to die, Ahimelech, you and your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David." And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me, but the servants of the king would not put their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. So Saul makes a a command, kill the priests. And his men are like, I ain't doing that. No. You see how much respect Saul's men had for him. And the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite, happy to do it, turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who were of the linen ephod. And Nob went back, he went over to the other city of the priests. He put everybody in the city to the sword, both man and women, child and infant, ox, donkey, sheep. He put all of it to the sword. But none of the sons of Ahimelech, the sons of Ahitab, named Abathar, one of them escaped and fled to David. So in the middle of all of this, Doeg is killing every one of the priests, everything he can see, and one guy named Abathar escaped. And Abathar came to David and told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abathar, man, I knew it. I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. I'm the reason why they're dead. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. So Saul sentences all the priests to death. Doeg carries it out. And uh, Abathar escapes and comes to David and tells David what happens. And David at this moment learns two very valuable lessons. Lessons that are important for us to know. First, if you leave room for the enemy to exploit your weakness, he's gonna do it every single time. Now this wasn't David's fault. But David felt some sense of guilt that he was responsible for it. And the reason why is because this was a moment of weakness for David. David was on the run. He made a poor decision in the sword situation. He didn't really know where he was going. He didn't consult the Lord. He just went to the priest to get the bread and the sword. And then he started making his own decisions. He was weak at this moment. But he knew even in his weakness that this was going to be a problem, but he didn't do anything about it. And so what David learned in this moment is you can't let this stuff go unchecked in your life. If you see something that needs addressing, you have to address it because if you don't, the enemy will absolutely take that thing and use it against you later on. That's an important lesson for us because there's a lot of things in our life that we consider not a big deal or kind of a big deal, but I'll get to it later or not worth my time. That thing, that unlocked door, the enemy is going to exploit that against you. This is why Paul in the New Testament tells us in Ephesians chapter six to pull on, put on the full armor of God. Don't just put on the helmet of salvation. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Take up the sword of the spirit. Get the shield of faith. You can't put on half the armor. You can't say I put on the armor and only wear two pieces of it. Why? Because if you don't have that sword in your hand and the shield in your hand, you're going to get exploited by the enemy. But I have on the helmet of salvation. Yeah, but you're going to get your clock cleaned regularly. 
The other way that Paul brings this across is in Romans 13, 14. He says, don't store up provisions for the flesh. Don't think that it's not a big deal to let that thing that constantly entraps you go unchecked. Look, you've got to get serious about putting sin to death in your life if you really want to grow as a believer. There's no way around it. You can't just keep saying, well, well I'm, I'm, I, I don't know, I just... I got this thing I keep struggling with. I guess it's my thorn in my side. No, that's not how this works. How this works is you get violent about putting sin to death. You stomp on it. You put it in the grave and you don't go back for it. Listen, if your primary source for pornography is your phone, get rid of your phone. You hear me? What does Jesus say? Cut your eye out. Cut off your hand. Better to enter into the kingdom of God without an extremity than to burn in the fires of hell. You got this thing where you just love to gossip and there's this one little coffee meeting that you always get to satisfy that flesh with. Stop going. Tell those girls, I'm sorry, I can't go anymore. You got a thing in your soul where you're just like, man, I love feeding my flesh by, 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 by watching this kind of entertainment. It, it just, I don't know, I just, I like the story. I, 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 I like what it, it feeds on the inside of me. That thing is ruining you. It's filling your mind with stuff that you meditate on throughout the rest of the day and you're normalizing sinful behavior. This stuff that's being pumped in through the news or through Netflix, you're watching this, it's entertainment and it's tempering your spirit. It's changing the way that you see things. It's changing your desires and the way you, you, the, the way you like stuff and, it, and it's actually changing your affections. And eventually, that's the only thing that kind of stirs your affections. What's the best way to deal with it? Well, stop storing up provisions for the flesh. Quit paying Netflix $19 a month for that crap. Get rid of it. Listen, I'm not standing here saying, well, now you gotta get rid of anything. We can live as a monk, go buy a cabin in the woods and turn everything off. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is there are things about you that you know aren't good for you, but you just keep feeding it. You can't help yourself. And this is the lesson that David learned. You can't think I'm on a mission for God and watch the enemy over in the corner see you in your weakness and not button that up to deal with it. Because if you don't, it's gonna come back and it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna slay you in your sleep. The other beautiful thing that he learns here is about leadership. See, Abathar comes to him and says, my whole family has been massacred. I don't have a home anymore. I've gotten, I don't even have a family. And David says to him in verse 23, don't be afraid. With me you will find safekeeping. David has found comfort in the Lord. And that same comfort he finds in the Lord, he's now able to offer to Abathar. David becomes a refuge for Abathar because he has his refuge in the Lord. And this is a leadership lesson about the way we're supposed to be leading. Jesus talks about this in Mark chapter 10. 
He says the lords of this world, they love lording power over everybody, but that's not how I want you to lead. I want you to lead by my example. I want to set the example that what we do here in this family is servanthood. We get low, we humble ourselves, we serve one another. We don't lord power over one another. And so what's happening in this moment is David is learning something about leadership. David, when you take that throne, don't lord the power over people. The same comfort that you found in me, give that kind of comfort to the people. Dads, this is an invitation for you. The comfort that you find in the Lord is the comfort that you should be bringing into your home. Your kids shouldn't feel like you're Saul with a spear in your hand. They should feel like you're Christ on your knees serving your family. You hear me? And in that, they find comfort and their, their strength and they, their, their confidence is built because they know that dad is for them and dad loves them. Dad will spank them, but dad loves them. Same with moms. You've got kids in here. When, when you find your comfort in the Lord, not in your husband, but in the Lord, you are strengthened and he is your refuge. Then you start providing that for your kids and they understand what it, what it means to have your comfort and value in the Lord. And that's the norm in the family. But my question here is how in the world could David offer that to Abathar? Did you find that interesting? The last thing he says, with me you shall find safe keeping. What's safe keeping? David's running for his life and he lives in a cave. What could he, what, what was he possibly offering? He, his view must have been off. Like, David, do you even know who you are? Like, you have no home. You don't even have a sword. How could you offer safekeeping to this other guy? It's because David saw his view of himself from God's perspective and not his perspective. And he wrote about it in Psalm 52, and this is how we're gonna close. If you'll turn over to Psalm 52, I want to read to you what David was thinking when he offered protection to Abathar. David's not offering status or title or sword or protection. He's offering this. Psalm 52. This is what was written when he found out that Doeg the Edomite had killed all the priests. David wrote, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all day long. See, your tongue plots destruction like sharp razor, you, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than you love good, lying more than speaking what is right, Selah, which is a Hebrew, like pause and calmly reflect on that. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living, Selah. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge? but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Look at this. But I am like an olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever, and I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. What did David have to offer to Abathar? He had the protection of Yahweh, which is what he had. 
David's not saying, come stand behind me and I'll protect you. He's saying, come in this cave with the other outcasts and God will protect us. This is what David learned in this moment that he was not a weakling, he was not worn out, he was not passed over, and he is not without help. He is a green olive tree in the house of the Lord. His life was not falling apart, he's actually getting planted and growing. He didn't lose everything, he gained everything. He wasn't stripped and pruned, he's actually producing fruit. Now, why am I showing this to you? Because you need to hear this morning that this picture that David had of himself is the same picture that you are supposed to have for yourself. Listen to me and hear me clearly, and I'm gonna close on this. You are not down and out. You are not weak and worthless and oppressed. You are not worthless. You are a green olive tree producing rich fruit with deep roots in the soil of God. I don't care what this world has said about you or what your mom or your dad has said about you or what your ex-wife has said about you or your ex-husband. I don't care. All I care about is what the Lord says about you. And this is what the Lord says about you. Take comfort in me because you are a green olive tree in my house. You are growing, producing fruit, and putting down deep roots. Stop giving up and keep going. And on that, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.